All right, as Pastor said, our lesson today is, is mostly a history lesson, but I do want to open with a text of scriptures. So if you open in your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 2, I'd like to read together in unison Philippians 2, 3 to 9. And in the end, we'll have a little bit of commentary back to this, but so let's begin. In verse 3, together, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem the other better than themselves, looking not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, thought it not robbery to be made equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross." Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and in things under the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we seek your face this morning, knowing that you are the one true God, the God of Israel, but also the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We seek your Holy Spirit to be with us this morning that you would anoint my lips and that your word might be instructed to these people through me. And I ask for his grace to be upon me. And we thank you so much for this Passover feast and the, what we commemorate there with the sacrifice, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Amen. Amen. So this lesson today is, is really a trying, me trying to answer a question that somebody asked me kind of in a conversation in the cafeteria at Tabernacles. Um, and before I really even tell you or that question, because I think if I, if I gave you that question, some of you might be like, well, that's just a heretical question to begin with. But it, it comes, I think, from an honest uh, point of view. But in order to kind of give you the, the background of where that question came from, I want to read to you a letter. It's a historical letter that... Uh, came, it's from the mouth of Constantine, or from the pen of the Emperor Constantine the Great. Um, it was published probably about 325 AD. So I'll skip over a few things, so it won't all be you know, exactly as you'd find it if you go look it up, but let me read this to you. <clears throat> it says, Constantinus Augustus to the churches, having had full proof in the general prosperity of the empire, how great the favor of God has been toward us. I have judged that it ought to be the first object of my endeavors, that unity of faith, sincerity of love, and community of feeling in regard to the worship of Almighty God might be preserved among the highly favored multitude who compose the Catholic or universal church. And in such thing as this object could not be effectually and certainly secured unless all or at least the great multitude of the bishops were to meet together and to discuss of all particulars relating to our most holy religion and to take place for this reason as numerous as an assembly as possible, has been convened. Went on to talk about some of the things regarding to Arianism, but then he says, When the question related to the sacred feast of Passover arose, it was universally thought that it would be convenient that all should keep the feast on one day. For what could be more beautiful and more desirable than to see this festival Though which we through which we receive the hope of immortality, celebrated by all with one accord and in the same manner. It was declared to be particularly unworthy for this, the holiest of all festivals, to follow the custom or the calculation of the Jews. 
who had soiled their hands with the most fearful of crimes, whose minds were blinded. In rejecting their custom, we may transmit to our descendants the legitimate mode of celebrating Easter, which we have observed from the time of the Savior's Passion to the present day. And say, you know, according to the days of the week. And I say that that's not an accurate statement. We'll, we'll look at that a little bit later, but getting back to the quote. We ought not, therefore, to have anything common with the Jews, for the Savior has shown us another way. Our worship follows a more legitimate and more convenient course, the order of the days of the week. And consequently, in unanimously adopting this mode, we desire, dearest brethren, to separate ourselves from the detestable company of the Jews. For it is truly shameful for us to hear them boast that without their direction we could not keep this feast. How can they be in the right, they who after the death of the Savior have no longer been led by reason but by wild violence, as the delusions may urge them? They do not possess the truth in this Passover question. For in their blindness and repugnance to all improvements, they frequently celebrate two Passovers in the same year. I think that that's a reference to, like, if you're unclean, the next month you could keep the Passover. I think that's what he's referring to. Just a little bit off the record there. They could not imitate those who, or we could not imitate those who are openly in error. For then how could we follow these Jews who are most certainly blinded in error for to celebrate the Passover twice in one year is totally inadmissible. But even if this were not so, it would still be our duty not to tarnish our souls by communications with such wicked people, the Jews. For this reason, divine providence wills that the custom should be rectified and regulated in a uniform way, and everyone, I hope, will agree upon this point. As on one hand, it is our duty to, have any, to not have anything in common with the murderers of our Lord, and on the other hand, the custom, now followed by the churches of the West, of the South, and of the North, and by some of those in the East, is most acceptable. It has appeared good to all, and I have been guaranteed of your consent. End quote. End of quote there. So I hope that that letter is somewhat repugnant to you. It uh, stands against what we are all gathered here today and this week to celebrate. It stands against the observation of Passover, of the communion of our body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the 14th of Abib, according to the Hebrew calendar. And so the, the question that I was asked that I'm trying to, to answer here is, you know, the, when he starts off and says, you know, a, a council has been put together to, to address and to rectify and make unity throughout the faith of the churches, that council is, of course, the Council of Nicaea. And it's from where we get the Nicene Creed. And so the, the question that I'm trying to answer that was proposed to me at Tabernacles is, why do we use the Nicene Creed knowing that the council condemned Passover observation? And, yeah, you know, I think it's, it is an important question. It's kind of a, an elephant in the room question, you know, something, it's a pretty hard, you know, thing to wrestle with. Um, but I think that, you know, it's the things that, sometimes it's the hard questions that give us the, the best benefit. Um, and as I study this out, I, I see a common trend, if you will, that people, for, you know, a real big example within ourselves is the Herbert Armstrong, the Church of God. They, you know, I, I can't say this with certainty, but it'd be my theory that 
largely out of rejection of the Council of Nicaea in relation to the Passover question and when it should be observed, that's really what led them to reject the Trinity. You'll find that the people really camp out on that letter and say, you know, because Nicaea said this, we'll have nothing to do with anything else that they said. And so we need to really, I think, look at this. So there's, I think, several myths and sort of, you know, concepts that they're, you know, pop culture myths or within Christianity that um, surround Constantine and the Nicene Council. I think if we go through those and kind of dispel them and figure out what, a, what was really happening in history, then uh, it sets a, the background for, you know, how to answer that question properly. So looking at the life of Constantine, I think that it's, it's very common for a lot of people in the remnant and in you know, non-mainstream Christian to see Constantine as this you know, real bad guy in history. And so they use him as a scapegoat for about everything that they perceive is wrong with the Christian church in the following centuries. You know, you'll find something like you know, the establishment of Christmas and association with Solus Invictus and the rising of the sun at the, you know, not the vernal, at the, ah, what's the word? You know, the, the solstice, sorry. Yes, thank you. Um, you know, they'll say, well, that was Constantine. And it wasn't. It was a much later uh, bishop of Rome or a pope, is how they'd call him. But uh, let's look at the first myth that I have there. Constantine made Christianity the state religion of Rome. I heard that in a video uh, about America's occult holidays that was passed, you know, was shared to me. A guy said that like it was just a statement of fact. Um, so there's a, the decree of Milan. It's also called the, the decree of tolerance that Constantine signed into law in 313 AD. That made Christianity legal, not mandatory. Okay, so before that, from 303 to 313, that's the, one of the worst times of persecution in the Christian church, you could not legally be a Christian. You could be put to death for being a Christian. And with the Edict of Milan, you could now freely practice your religion as a Christian. So Constantine did not force people, pagans, to convert to Christianity. He merely made Christianity legal. Second myth, I think, that is around Constantine is Constantine claimed, you'll hear this, that Constantine claimed to be a Christian to curry favor and popularity with Christians that were almost the majority in the Roman Empire. You'll hear that, you know, going into the Battle of the Mulvane Bridge, that he had a, a lot of Christians in his army, and so he, uh, you know, threw his weight behind them, and he painted the Cairo on their shields, and that motivated everyone there to go in and, you know, fight and, uh, you know, liberate Rome from the, uh, the tyrant, as they might call him. Um, so... But the fact of the matter is that after the Diocletian persecution, that decade of persecution, Christians made up only about 10 to 15 percent of the population of Rome. Uh, Christians had pretty much universally been removed from all political and military positions. You know, very much like we read about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the story of Daniel. The, you know, the emperor asked that, you know, pinches of incense and prayers be made to him. 
And anyone who would not do that was, you know, the first edict was that all their possessions would be sold. They could own nothing. And so, you know, it was very easy for them to weed out Christians in high positions because they would not, you know, Christians would not do those things. They would not eat the sacrifices to the pagan gods. And so, you know, it's very real reality that, you know, to think that Constantine threw his weight in with the Christians to, you know, gain favor, it, it would have been really political suicide. You know, you're not going to th throw yourself in agreement with, you know, the 10% in order to, to win your, the, you know, favor of the empire. And, you know, so with the emperor empire being, you know, still about 90% pagan, um, and Constantine ruling kind of with Licinius in the rest of the empire as a, like a co-ruler, although they really ended up as, uh, as rivals. That's probably why we see Constantine in some of his coinage still having pagan symbols on him. Um, when, in 324, when Constantine defeats Licinius, after that you see a lot more Christian symbols on the coinage. But as early as 316, there's medallions that have you know, the head of Constantine, and he's got the, the Cairo, the symbol, you know, the first two letters of Christ in, you know, on his uh, helmet. And so it's really, really just a myth to say that, you know, for popular reasons, he threw in with the Christians. A third myth, that Constantine was motivated to change the date of Passover to unite and meld together Christianity and paganism. Something that we hear a lot about Constantine is he wanted to sort of unite the whole empire under one religion, and so he did a lot of mixing and matching of Christianity and paganism. Well, as we read in that, as I read in that letter, and I think you can see it quite clearly, that it was simply for, and most clearly, his motivation for moving the date of Passover was, for hate, was because of hatred of the Jews and all things Jewish. And so as a result of that animosity in rejecting Jewishness, he actually rejected biblical teaching. The fourth myth is that Constantine had a late-in-life conversion at his deathbed baptism. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but he actually put off his baptism until pretty much he fell very sick at the end of his life, and it was then that he was baptized, um, little kind of a scandal and, and that, you know, he was off in the further part of the empire fighting and it ended up being an Arian bishop who baptized him. Um, and so some people say, well, he, you know, decided to side with the Arians at that point. And I don't know if that's either that is technically true or not, but two of his uh, sons who would succeed him were Arians and one was uh, what you might call it of the Nicene faith, you know, believer in the Trinity. Um, but uh, this, this idea of delaying baptism till late in life was kind of a, a false understanding of baptism and what it did. Um, but they would do that in order to wash more sins away. It was a, kind of a common practice in that era. There's actually a, a guy named Tertullian who first kind of brings that idea into to light. And... He, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting because it's like one of the first times in church history that we see an argument about infant baptism. 
And Tertullian, his argument was that if you're going to be baptized as an infant, you're like almost wasting your baptism. Because baptism washes away your sins. And so it's better to wait until you know, you're, you're older and you've actually really committed some sins. And you know, wait until after your, your 20s and you know, that you've, you've been around a while and you've really got something that needs washed away. So clearly he didn't understand original sin at all. You know, he didn't understand that we are sinners in Adam and in our birth. And that's where we need salvation from. But it, it came, you know, for a while there, it, it was the, the dominant practice, that, that sort of idea. Um, Augustine, he writes against this, but he tells a story in his confessions that as a, as a young man or young boy, he became very sick. And sick, the, you know, his mother Monica thought that he would probably, you know, he was about to die. And so she called for, you know, the elders of the church and wanted to get him baptized right away. But he got better before they actually got him baptized. So at that point she said, no, no, we're not going to have him baptized. We're going we're to wait till later, you know, if he goes off on his wayward journey as a, you know, young adult, then he'll be baptized, he'll be better to wait, and then it'll wash that, that sin away. And so it was really because of that teaching that Constantine, you know, delayed his own baptism. So it's kind of the orthodox position at the time, but we would see it as heterodox because it's a, a false understanding of what baptism does. Um, so moving on, there's a few controversies in church history that really lead up to the Council of Nicaea that I want to look at. Um, the first one would be what's called the Quarter Decimon Controversy. <clears throat> this was, as it were, one of the controversies that they set to kind of settle at Nicaea. Um, and it was a debate about when to keep the annual Paschal Feast. And it was one of the earliest controversies in the church. The first disagreement seems to have taken place about 145 AD between Polycarp, the bishop of Ephesus, and Anicetus, the bishop of Rome. And they were able to, you know, Polycarp went to Rome and they, they settled it by agreeing to disagree. You know, Anicetus said, well, you guys keep keeping Passover on the 14th of the month of Abib. But Anicetus was, said that he would follow the tradition of the presbyters that were before him. Now, Polycarp claimed that he learned to keep Passover on the 14th from the Apostle John. Anicetus says the presbyters that were before him. But they agreed to disagree. They weren't going to force the issue. However, in about 190, Pope Victor, or not, I said Pope, the, the Catholics would call him a Pope. If we look at church history, we you know, would understand him more as just the Bishop of Rome. The idea of a Pope, I don't think, had really come into existence yet as, as one supreme head over the church. But Victor strongly disagreed with the practice of the churches of Asia. And uh, he he wanted to have them all excommunicated. Anyone who kept the Passover on the 14th of Abib, he thought should be removed from the church. And so he sent a letter. <clears throat> he got a reply from a man named Polycrates. How many of you are familiar with that letter? Okay. To me, it's, it's a, one of the greatest statements of belief about Passover in church history. I think that it's well worth um, looking at, you know, maybe even 
memorizing, but I'd like you to read that letter. So this is written about 190 from Polycrates, the bishop of Ephesus. He says, We observe the exact day, neither adding nor taking away. For in Asia also great lights have fallen asleep, which shall rise again on the day of the Lord's coming. Among these are Philip, one of the twelve apostles, and his two aged virgin daughters, another daughter, and moreover John, who is both a witness and a teacher. He fell asleep at Ephesus. And Polycarp in Smyrna, who was bishop and martyr, and Trasus, bishop and martyr from Eumenia. Why need I mention the bishop and martyr Sargis, or the blessed Papyrus, or Melito? <coughs> All these observed the 14th day of the Passover, according to the gospel, deviating in no respect, but following the rule of faith. And I also, Polycrates, the least of you all, do according to the tradition of my relatives, some of whom I have closely followed. For seven of my relatives were bishop, and, and I am the eighth. And my relatives always observed the day when the people put away the leaven. I therefore, brethren, who have lived 65 years in the Lord, and have met with the brethren throughout the world, and have gone through every holy scripture, and not affrighted by terrifying words. For those greater than I have said, we ought to obey God rather than man. Amen. So we see that the churches of Asia Minor, where Paul had most of his ministry, stuck with the, the 14th day of Abib as far as when they would observe the Passover. <clears throat> the churches of Rome, it appears, Rome and the West, appears at around 135 following the uh, Bar Kokhba rebellion, which is really a, a very important piece of history that we need to understand that, you know, there's a second Jewish revolt, second Jewish war in which Jerusalem was sacked. But up until that point, according to one historian, Epiphanius, there was a, a council of about 15 bishops, he calls them the bishops of the circumcision, and it appears that they in Jerusalem, that council, would every year set the date for when Passover should be. And that from you know, that sort of council, they would publish it to the churches throughout the, the world. But in 135, with the destruction of Jerusalem and Hadrian's ban on all practices of Judaism, those, that, that quorum of bishops was ejected from Jerusalem. And no longer was that a possibility. And so that you know, became to be a practical problem for you know, people in Rome and so forth as to you know, how are we going to now decide how to keep the Feast of Passover and when it should be observed. And so it appears that at that time they decided, well, hey, let's do it on Sunday, the, Lord, you know, the Lord's Day, the Day of Resurrection, because that's you know, the same day, every, same day of the week every year. It's a lot more convenient, as we heard Constantine say in that letter. So the other... Um, controversies that would lead up to the uh, Council of Nicaea were a second century heresy called modalism. Modalism taught that the God is only one person, but manifests himself in different modes as a son and spirit. Uh, this is resurfaced in the Pentecostal oneness doctrine of today. So is that, you know, there's only really one God in heaven, but he sort of puts on different masks. He manifests himself as the Son or as the Holy Spirit. As Seth pointed out, uh, you know, that's pretty hard to have that picture of, 
Jesus being baptized when the Father speaks and the Holy Spirit descends on him and the Son is there in person. Um, but then as it seems like it's almost somewhat of an overreaction to that doctrine that Arius comes on the scene. And he teaches that the Father and the Son are so different that they're not even the same being. They're completely separate beings. And that the Son is actually a created being. So there was a time when there was just the Father, and he begat or created the Son. Um, part of why I wanted to read that passage out of Philippians is that I feel that that speaks to both of these heresies. It says that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, speaking of Jesus Christ. So, you know, if Christ is a created being, he's obviously not equal to the Father because he's been created. But it says there very clearly that he is equal with God the Father. But also in seven, verse 7 it said, But he made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Being found in the fashion of a man. And so that's, that's the son speaking before he is incarnate in the flesh. And so he he's, has being in heaven next to the father. And if God the father is only one being in heaven, then how can Christ be recorded as speaking there? As Seth said, we see, so we see Arianism still in the present world in Jehovah's Witness, and as well as in Mormonism to some extent. They teach that the, the Son is, in fact, the Son of God, a created lesser, not as eternal as the Father. There was a time when, according to Mormonism, there was only the Father and the Son came later. So look on to the, the Council of Nicaea and some of the myths that I feel like surround that. The Council of Nicaea was called for the purpose of making a decision of the teachings of Arius and formulating language to define the Godhead. When the Council of Nicaea is called, it is first and foremost to combat the heresy of Arianism and to make a decision, are we going to completely reject that or are we going, you know, what will be the church's position on what Arius is teaching? We need to keep that in mind as, as the real background. That first and foremost, the people, the bishops who were invited to that council came to answer the Arian question. And everything else that they discussed was second to that. Um, however, it's a very classic myth that surrounds the Council of Nicaea. Then that is that the New Testament canon was formulized by the Council of Nicaea. Has anybody heard that? Very popular. You'll see that in numerous places. I want to read to you a few quotes from some uh, scholars on that subject. The Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the formation of the New Testament canon, nor did Constantine. Nicaea was concerned with how Christians should articulate their beliefs about the divinity of Jesus. That's by a guy named Dr. Michael Kruger. He's the president and professor of New Testament theology at Charlotte Campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. And another quote here. What is particularly important to notice is that the New Testament canon was not democratized by the arbitrary of any church council. As Dr. Folks Jackson puts it, the church assuredly did not make the New Testament canon. That's from F.F. F. Bruce in his book, The Books and the Parchment. I'm giving you two verses there you could look up. I think that they give us a little bit of a window into how we got the New Testament. Um, that's been a special study for me, and maybe 
time and circumstances. Someday I can give a few lessons on that. Second myth around the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea made up the Trinity. You can find some videos on YouTube that will tell you that. Um, but the, you know, the word Trinity was first used by Tertullian around 200 AD. And as you know, Seth instructed us, it's based on biblical teaching. It's nothing new in 325. It's well established by the church and by their doctrine. Uh, the third myth. The council anathematized quarter decimons. And so that's the, the myth that coming out of the canon, anyone, you know, they actually made a statement that anyone who continued to celebrate Passover on the 14th of Abib would be anathematized, that they would be cast out of the church, that they should be um, removed and rejected from the church. And that, that really didn't happen. We don't really see that in writing. Um, the written documents that come out of, the, out of Nicaea are the original creed. There's 20 canons or laws for the church. And there's one letter written to the specific church, the Church of Alexandria, because that's where Arius first came from. And so they wanted to write a letter to that church and say, you know, this is what we have decided. And it's only in that letter to the Church of Alexandria that we have a written account coming from the uh, council itself that addresses the Passover Easter question and when it should be kept. So, in answer to the question um, in section four there, the creed and why we use it. So first and foremost, it is based on an summation of biblical teaching. You know, let us be, as you know, the Reformation father said, sola scriptura. Because you know, the Nicene Creed and the Nicene faith is established on biblical doctrine. That's why we should follow it. That's why we should use it in our church. Because it is a summation, you know, it takes quite a while to articulate, you know, the belief of the Godhead. And you know, the Nicene Creed does that in a very short, concise statement. And so it is a very beneficial thing for us to have on hand and to be able to use. The creed in the early church councils are part of our history as Protestant Christians. You know, we might look into that era and see bishops of, you know, the bishop of Rome and his hand and all these things. But, you know, he really was just a bishop. He wasn't a pope at that time. You know, the reason that Polycrates could say we ought to obey God rather than man, because he certainly didn't see Victor, the bishop of Rome, as the emissary of God or some sort of divine person. He didn't think that just because Victor said it, it made it the rule of law in all the churches. In a sense, uh, I think the Nicene Creed really represents... Um, the old path. You can look up that verse in Jeremiah, but he says, you know, let us walk in the old path. And, you know, something that was established in 325 and has just really stood the test of time. It has been founded in the church and has been a formulation that has established sort of bumpers. If you, as you look through the, uh, those ecumenical councils that would follow from Nicaea forward, I think you really see 
that the church was making a walk that I think all Christians themselves do. And that, you know, once you're saved and you come to a faith of Jesus Christ, it's natural to ask, well, who is Jesus? How does he actually relate to God the Father? And so, you know, you understand that, well, Jesus is God. And he's God from the beginning. He's our creator. And he's equal with the Father. And then you'll say, like, well, man, if that's true, how did he become a man? And, you know, suffer and die for us. How, how did the incarnation happen? And, you know, moving on from Nicaea, we see, you know, other heresies that came into play that really came and, like, questioned that. They questioned the, the human nature of Jesus Christ. Um, you'll see that. I'd like to read, you know, the, what we call, what we have in, our, in the prayer book as the creed commonly called Nicaea. It's, it's not actually what the Nicene um, fathers in 325 put together. There's, there's been some additions to it. And so in 381, there was a, a second council called the Council of Constantinople. And they would, because one of the, there's a guy who taught that, well, Jesus, you know, he was divine, but he was like really just a divine mind in a human body. And really kind of separated the divinity of Christ and the manhood of Christ. And, you know, that heresy, you know, it takes away from, you know, the idea or, you know, what Hebrews says that he was tempted in all points like as we. Because if, if he had a completely divine mind, then he's, he's not really tempted. He, you know, he's... And then... You know, in, in his suffering on the cross, you know, if, if he can see forward into the future with absolute clarity and sort of, you know, it kind of, if he's not really man and can, doesn't have, you know, the shortness of vision that we have in a sense, then, you know, to, to stick through that, it's easy if he's completely divine and doesn't really feel you know, in his, in his divine mind, he can overcome the pains that we feel as men. You know, he was truly mortal. And so, in the, in Con, at Constantinople, they, in, <clears throat> they put in the line that he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary. Um, but, you know, then moving forward, at, you know, when we think about that Christian walk and how we begin to define God, you know, once, we've de once we see that Jesus is God, equal and, you know, the, the wording that was like the most kind of schismatic thing that they said in, in Nicaea was that he's homo usios. That's homo same and usios essence or he's the same substance. Homo usios. And so, you know, that was, that was probably the, the hardest thing that, that kind of, you know, some bishops would like, I, I can go everywhere but not quite there. But as the, you know, we defined that and we've come to agree that you know, he's of the same substance with the Father. And then the next question, you know, as a believer, you might ask is, well, what's this Holy Spirit I hear about? And between 325 and 381, there were, I think, two different heretics who denied the Holy Spirit even existed. And, and so in the original Creed of Nicaea, it actually ends with just one paragraph. And the end of that paragraph is... I believe in the Holy Ghost. Yeah. 
<clears throat> and so in 381, the, the second paragraph that we have in the Nicene Creed is given to us then to combat that heresy. And so I think it's important that we understand that at no point you know, did the, the creed or these councils, they never came together and said, hey, we're going to make everybody believe this. It always came from adversity within the church. They always came together because there was a, a teaching that just didn't seem right with Scripture. And so they came together to address those issues and to see what, you know, what does Scripture really teach and what can we gather together and learn and make a decision on is this the right path that we should follow. I think that also regarding to why we should use and still see the Nicene Creed as, as an authoritative, state, authoritative statement is that that letter that I read to begin with, you know, that came from Constantine, the emperor. And, you know, an emperor of Rome to me and whatever he decreed isn't binding to me. Whereas, you know, the, the, the statement against Passover really does not come from the council itself. You know, maybe I'm splitting hairs there, but I think that that's an important distinction. We really see sort of the condemnation or the you know, commands to keep uh, Passover or Easter on, on Sunday and not according to the biblical calendar coming from Constantine, not really the council itself. Um, and so I think that you know, we can see the church leaders of that council as experts and scholars in the Greek language of the New Testament and its teachings relative to the divinity of Christ. They, you know, many of them were native Greek speakers. And so you know, when you get into those, those fine points about you know, what the New Testament really says about the divinity of Christ, you know, they, were, they were scholars and experts in that. Um, but at the same time, we can understand that they knew little about the Hebrew calendar. The, um, you know, the reason, if you look up to you know, my points about the council, at, uh, under myth one there, I quoted two men who are very serious, devout New Testament scholars. They've literally spent their entire life studying different manuscripts and fragments of the New Testament. And they've, you know, in the New Testament canon and how it came together. And that's why I have confidence in quoting them. I honestly don't know very much else about what those men believe in different areas, but that's their area of study. Um, and so regarding the, you know, the, the statements that we find in the Nicene Creed about the divinity of God and the divinity of Jesus Christ and the relationship to the Godhead, we can have respect to what those fathers, those bishops say but in that area and not, as it were, throw out the baby with the bathwater because they didn't agree with what we believe that, you know, like, like Polycrates and those other churches that God commanded that we remember the death of Jesus Christ on Passover night, on the night in which he was betrayed. And the final point, if we reject the creed, we're falling into the same error as them. Being motivated by strife and disdain for others. For them, they disdained the Jews. And for us, if we disdain the council for what they said, we would be casting off sound biblical teaching 
for them the Passover, and for us the Trinity. So we've become the blind leading the blind, as it were. You know, I'd say that, you know, for myself, you know, I, I strive to study hard and to establish myself as, you know, having the best doctrine that I possibly, you know, can from the scriptures. Um, I would be greatly disappointed if, because, you know, my descendants or some later person found that I was in error in one place, that they would then reject and throw off everything that I'd ever taught, everything that I'd ever, you know, preached. Um, in Philippians, in the first verse that we read there, it said, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let us esteem others better than themselves. And that's something I think that we should really ponder on as it relates to the Council of Nicaea. Because many of those bishops that came to that council, they bore in their, mark, in their bodies the marks of persecution. See, Diocletian, in his persecution, he was pretty systematic. You know, if you're a Christian, you're put to death. But if he found a bishop, that was something special. Because his idea was that if he could get a church leader to recant, then that would take the whole church out. And so when he got a bishop, he kept them, and they were tortured. So many of the men that were there at Nicaea, you know, they were missing limbs and appendages. They had their tongues cut off and their eyes gouged out. They truly suffered for what they believed. And so let us have some respect for them. Let us esteem them better than ourselves in that they weren't compromising people. They didn't want to meld paganism and Christianity. They truly stood for what they believed. And it's at that that they wrote the Nicene Creed in relation to the heresy of Arianism. I'd like to read for you the original Nicene Creed. Like I said, it, it will be added to later in 381, and one word added later after that. But here's a statement. It says, We believe in one God the Father, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of his Father, of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both which are in heaven and are in earth, who for us man and our fathers salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate and was made man he suffered and the third day he rose again he ascended into heaven and he shall come again to judge both the quick and the dead and in the holy ghost that ends the positive statements of the nicene creed and then it followed with this statement which is specifically written against arianism he says and whosoever shall say that there was a time when the son of god was not or that before he was begotten he was not or that he was made of things that were not, or that he is of a different substance or essence from the Father, or that he is a creature or subject to change or conversion, all that so say the Catholic or universal and apostolic church anathematizes them. So we see that the decree against heresy was aimed directly and really only at Arius and his followers. So I'd like to end there. If you would, though, Take out your prayer book and let's recite together the Nicene Creed. If everyone would stand.
It's on page 23 in the prayer book. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost, Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And I believe in one Christian and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Thank you.